What's going on, people? This podcast is all about cultural mediation. To give you guys a better understanding of how this podcast came to be, we're two German college students and both attend Arizona Christian University in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. When we first came out here, we both experienced kind of a culture shock as we we're thrown into a completely different environment than what we're used to. In other words, this podcast is really about culture understanding and cultural awareness. By talking to a few individuals about their field of expertise, we're trying to get a better insight of American culture and how the American society works. Last but not least, we're trying to figure out why is this country so diverse, yet so amazing. By talking to people from all social, economic and ethnic backgrounds, we hope that listeners of this podcast will become more tolerant of different points of view in the American as well as in other cultures. In addition... We hope that you guys are going to get the most out of the podcast, expand your horizon, as well as we are just trying to document our time here in Arizona. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. What's going on, people? Welcome to the second episode of Stars Drive Stories. Our guest today is the amazing Jess Harris. Mr. Harris is a professor of the humanities and economics at Arizona Christian University and is specialized in rebuilding economies after war. He is the father of four daughters and one son and received his undergrad from Bemidji State University in vocal music and theater and then went on to get his Master's of Military Art and Science at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. Mr. Harris was in the U.S. military for an incredible 28 years and experienced combat in Afghanistan. In today's episode, we're going to talk about America's foreign affairs and why people still think that the U.S. has the role of a world police. Mr. Harris is going to share his experience in combat as well as his experience in the military. He's going to talk about what does it take to be a soldier. And last but not least, he's going to give advice for returning soldiers who are trying to make the transition to the normal life. We hope you guys enjoy listening to the podcast. Uh, Mr. Jess Harris um, on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Mr. My Harris. pleasure. Thank you. And today we're going to talk a little bit about um, your role in the military as well as um, just the military in general, how important it is, what people don't understand about it. And yeah, maybe just to get, to get started, can you explain a little bit about what you did in the military, what your job was, how did you get there and all that stuff? Sure. I started out as an enlisted infantryman. I... Um was an air assault trooper in, in a light infantry unit, which means that we carried everything on our backs. So we would deploy into an area, and uh, if you weren't carrying it, you didn't have access for some significant period of time. So we had to have all of our own food, all of our own water, ammunition, uh, critical gear, everything like that had to be on your person. And we deployed by helicopter, so we would go uh, rappel out of a helicopter into uh, an isolated area. Uh, set up a security perimeter and then um, do whatever mission we were there for. So that was my job initially when I was uh, an infantryman. Then I went to officer candidate school, which is uh, the program that the Army has for returning people from 
uh, enlisted into officers. I already had my four-year degree before I enlisted, so I didn't have to, there's a process you normally have to go through. I didn't have to do that uh, as far as, um, as, far as uh, gaining your, your uh, degree before you get to a certain rank. So you're so, when, right when you got out of college? Um, I actually did some other things for a little while. Okay. I, uh, um, I worked in uh, a little bit of uh, industrial stuff, okay. basically just feeding my family. Uh, I also worked briefly as a pastor and as a music pastor because I was a music major. I worked yeah. as a music mm -hmm. pastor for a while. So I did so, that sort of thing, but then um, joined the Army, uh, enjoyed that uh, mm -hmm. a lot. So I went to officer candidate school, kind of get the next step up career-wise. When I went to officer candidate school, they um, branched me in intelligence, in the intelligence field, which was something that I had no experience with, uh, being an infantryman, just a basic grunt. Mm -hmm. So uh, having to do, having to move from that into this very new field as an intelligence officer um, was kind of a striking thing, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed that great, a great deal. So what was your initial motivation behind joining the military? Because if we look at your undergraduate degree, that's like not the typical path of a military guy you study. <laughs> to music. say the least. <laughs> to say the least. You study music and theater, so let's join so, the military. Let's yeah, right. right. So well, where did that come from? What was your idea behind that? What was your intention, your motivation? Well, uh, I used to joke that someone with a with a non-teaching degree in music and theater, mm -hmm. uh, the Army was a natural choice because there's nothing else that you can <laughs> do with those degrees. Um, but in reality, it came down to uh, my father was a Marine in World War II. Oh, okay. And uh, before him, I had uh, family members in virtually every war up to and including the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. So we had very, very long family history of military service, and I just really felt compelled to... Uh, to do that. So I, I did, I, uh, I enlisted and um, decided that I liked it and uh, stuck with it. So that whole war thing was always part of your um, childhood or can you say that? So you were like raised knowing a lot about military, um, kind of like thinking about war in general, like getting some knowledge from your dad or all that. How did that work when you were younger? It's, that's an interesting question because my dad, um, my dad enlisted in the Marine Corps right after Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So he was in for the duration of the war. He didn't come back until um, actually 1946 that he got home. So he was there for the entire duration of the war. And while he was there, the company that he deployed with, they did what they called cohort deployments. So you trained with a whole company of men, about 100 men, and you went over there as a group out of that company, he and one other man came back. So it's difficult to comprehend the sense of loss that you have when you've yeah. lost that many people. And then uh, he also enlisted at the same time as his brother, who was living at, um, with him at the same time. They were living in an apartment in California, and uh, his brother was killed. Um, so when he came back, I think his sense of loss was so intense that he really didn't like to talk about the war. So I really didn't grow up with that kind of background you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, he had no interest in talking about military things or war. He had no interest at all in us joining. Um, yeah, that, but would be, it was, that just, was my yeah. impression because, um, so my grandfather was in the military too. He was in World War II as well, on the other side of the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
It's all good now. It's all good now. <laughs> On the other side of the trenches, though. <laughs> uh, and then my dad also, he had to enlist in the military because it was like an obligation back in the day in Germany. And he was in the military for a couple of years. But me growing up, my parents were always so compelled. Like, I think if I joined the military today, it would probably like disown me. <laughs> so, yeah. no, to be honest, like, this is no joke. And so, was that ever a factor with your parents? Were they very much against your decision to join the military? Was it like a taboo topic growing up, maybe? I wouldn't have called it a taboo topic, but it certainly was not expected and um, not appreciated. Okay. Uh, they did not want me to join the military, but I just um, I just felt this obligation, and uh, so I did it. Okay. So was there um, maybe another reason? When you joined the military, was it for the reason to protect or fight for your country? Or was it basically... Because today I feel like there's a lot of... Germans that joined the military, the German military, but I feel like, and as I talked with my family about that, they said they want to be good humans, they want to change something, they want to end war, and they don't have that um, feeling to protect actually the German country, I feel, but in America it's very different. I feel like a lot of people join the military here in America and be like, yeah, I want to fight for this country, I want to protect this country. So was that um, a major motivation for you? Yeah, uh, that's a see. That's an interesting thing to compare those two. And I'm fortunately in my service, I had the blessing to serve with many officers from all over the world, including German officers yeah. quite often. Um, and it's interesting to see the different perspectives of people from their different countries and the way they approach military service. Right. Uh, I think you're right that in the United States, we take more of a sheepdog approach. That is to say. If the world, the vast majority of people, if you look at them as a flock of sheep, and that's good. It's not a bad thing to be because sheep are great creatures. They're productive. They, they're, they're wonderful things. They are, if you, if you look at this model, they are what the world is about. Yeah. But there are also wolves, and so you need to have sheepdogs. And so out of society, some people just naturally feel the need to protect others. Mm -hmm. I remember as a, as a young, young student in uh, probably what today we would call middle school, a kid who was much bigger than me, who was going to beat up another kid because he was being a bully, and I just stepped between them and I said, mm -hmm. you'll have to go through me first. What possessed me to do that, I don't know. It's a silly thing to do, but I did it because something inside of me said that's how you should be. Okay. That's how you should behave. Okay. And so I had that compulsion, and I think most of the officers and uh, the really good soldiers that I worked with also joined with that same compulsion. They just have this sort of sense of needing to protect. And in the U.S. military, that's really what, it, what our philosophy is, is it's about protecting. Uh -huh. All right, great. That's a great motivation behind that for sure. And so then after you went through your whole training and all that, you got deployed, right? Yes. Um, When was the first time that you got deployed and where could you just talk about that a little bit? Well, my first deployment was supposedly to Bosnia, but before I got to Bosnia... In the Civil War? The, yeah, during the, during the Bosnian Civil War. Um, but before I got to Bosnia, I was diverted to Germany. So I actually served at UCOM headquarters mm -hmm. in Stuttgart, oh, which was, uh, nice. yeah, it was great. Great city. Great city. You know, so, I, so I was technically, it was a deployment. Okay. 
but it was a deployment to Stuttgart instead of to Bosnia, right. which you know yeah. uh, was pretty cool. So I spent uh, I spent uh, six months there. Mm-hmm. Um, got to enjoy the the German people and the German hospitality and the German way of doing Christmas, which is fabulous. It's so amazing much, Christmas so markets. So much. All the Christmas markets. <laughs> yeah. It is so much better than the community. way we do it here. Yeah, that's it. It's community. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a wonderful experience for me to watch people just come out of their homes and just mingle and chat and uh, do things and the and the little kiosks that in the in the yeah. road everyone's buying and it's great. So we, we do would, take yeah we do take our Christmas series to sit down. <laughs> so this this podcast is a little bit of, about cultural mediation and since you talked about different perception of war maybe. Um, How can you compare maybe a German officer uh, in the military or an American officer? So where where are some major differences that you see between those kind of positions? It's uh, it's difficult to generalize because everyone is different. Okay. And the relationships I had were very personal relationships. I got to okay. know people very closely. Uh, I had a, a very fine officer who was uh, from Bavaria. Uh, and um, he had a very different approach mm-hmm. to the way he looked at things. My my thesis for my master's uh, focused on U.S. atrocities in World War II, not a popular subject among military people in the United okay. States. Okay, and, and a lot of people were just shocked, like, what atrocities? Because that's not taught in, in, in history books. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you research it, yes, we did our share of atrocities too. Not the same as Hitler's death camps, not the same as some of those other things, of course, uh, different scale, different purpose, but we had our own failings. And so my goal was to... Oh, his name was Michael. Huh? His name was Michael. Actually, his name was Michael, but what I was saying was my goal. Oh, (laughs) Actually, his name was um, Michael um, Hess. Michael Hess. I feel all Germans named Michael. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, he was good Hessian. Okay. So anyway, his name was Hess. Um... But, uh, but my goal was to, uh, to kind of explore how we could be better at um, not dehumanizing the enemy. Because mm-hmm. sure. I felt that crim- war crimes arise out of uh, dehumanizing the enemy to the point that you feel that they are subhuman and you can just kill them at will. Um, but Michael, uh, uh, Major Hess, was... Um, a little surprised by my whole take because, of course, he'd been brought up on learning uh, about the German atrocities in yeah. World War II yeah. and kind of seeing the, the, the idea of the Americans coming in as sort of great liberators and all this stuff. And, um, and he didn't have that same perspective that I did. So um, I felt that he was really interested to learn from me about these, about mm-hmm. these things that had not been a part of his thinking. Um, because he just has that, you know, we, I guess part of it is that Americans tend to be very self-critical. The world sees us as very egotistical, okay. but Americans are actually very self, at least in the military, okay. mili- uh, army officers, very self-critical and self and critical of our own country and always looking to how we can improve, looking where we were, where we were wrong so that we can understand how we can be better. Whereas in most countries, um, they don't even want to... S- even begin to talk about their own feelings, particularly, you know, I spent a lot of time in Japan and the Japanese officers 
basically it's a taboo topic. You don't talk okay. about their atrocities in World War II. Right. I think that's a really touchy subject for a lot of Americans, especially people that are not in the military, mm -hmm. because so the perception of the U.S. military outside of the U.S. is a lot like, why are the United States playing World Cup? You know, you've probably heard that before. Oh, sure. Like, why are, the, why are they invading other countries when it's really none of their business? Those countries are not threatening them. Like, why do they go there, kind of destroy the country sometimes, and then and they leave and sometimes even, like, take some of the resources and that. See, now, so, that actually is a misnomer. Okay. We never leave with more than we came with. Mm -hmm. We... We never take away their resources. If you look, and uh, Colin Powell said this really well. He was uh, addressing Parliament in England. Mm -hmm. And they said basically what you just said. And he said, in World War II and in World War I, we came, we bled, we died, we gave vast amounts of money, and we never asked for anything in return but a few small plots of land to bury our dead. Most certainly, most certainly, especially after World War II, the United States helped significantly yeah. in, in rebuilding the German economy. When they talk about the economic wonder of the 1950s, the United States played a large role in that, for sure. Yeah. So my question kind of is, like, do you think that all wars the United States have entered after World War II, they were all justified? Well, see, now, justification for war is a very complicated topic. Yeah. Do I think they were all wise? No. Okay. I think they were all justifiable from a certain point of view, but were they all necessarily a good idea? Probably not. And certainly not. Um, because we're humans and we make human mistakes. Mm -hmm. But part of the mistakes that, that Americans tend to make... Remember that little story I told you about stepping between the, the bully and the other kid? Mm -hmm. America always views itself as that same. That is the American military's point of view. That's how we view ourselves, is we're the ones who have to step in between to keep these people from being crushed. We have to step in to hold these people back. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what we just keep doing over and over again. That's why we went into World War I. That's why we went into World War II. That's why we went into basically all of the things that we've done. That was the driving idea. Now, sometimes there was some real politic going on. Uh, if you're familiar with the term real politic, um, not necessarily. It no. comes from one Would of you countrymen. A Ma uh, pardon me? Would you explain a little bit? Okay. Uh, Machiavelli's idea of real politic mm -hmm. was that uh, it, it's essentially a cold and calculated politics of international relations. And it, the concept is refined a little bit by um, Karl von, von Clausewitz. You familiar with him? Von Clausewitz? No. Okay, military philosopher, okay. Uh, a German military philosopher. Anyway, um, who then is the one who said war is the extension of politics by other means. Okay. Are you familiar with that expression? War is the expression or Makes extension sense, of yeah. politics by other means? Okay. So he takes the Machiavellian, we, that I, Machiavellian idea of cold calculating politics kind of infused with this uh, Clausewitzian idea of war is really just politics. Mm -hmm. It's just politics gone intense, right? Mm -hmm. And then, if you, then you say, okay, so sometimes war becomes a cold calculation. Right. Uh, and that's, that's where those two ideas come together. Okay, so that being the case, uh, I think there have been times, particularly in some of our dealings in Central and South America, where the U.S. has probably taken a very real politic position and taken military action where it was for purposes that served us more so than for purposes that served 
the people that we are ostensibly trying to protect. So I, I heard you saying a couple of times that war always has economic reasons, right? Yes. A war always has that um, kind of that money plays a big role. Um, especially now talking about the Middle East after 11th, um, after 9-11. Um, there's a lot of voices that claim that invading the Middle East was not the right thing to do since America just tried to get resources, tried to get oil and try to get all those stuff out of the countries. And how would you, as a person who served that uh, served during that time, and you said you've been in the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. How would you how would you respond to that? Do you feel kind of like criticized or hurt in what you're doing when people from America claim that all right, invading the Middle East just has um, is just justified by getting resources or getting oil and not actually to help out? How do you how would you respond to that? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm not hurt by anything like that okay. because I'm confident in my own knowledge and understanding. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's not the case. For instance, in, in Afghanistan, uh, basically we took no resources of any kind mm -hmm. out of there. I have poured tremendous economic resources um, or uh, financial capital into the country mm -hmm. and have taken absolutely zero out. And the same in Af in But you're in familiar Iraq. with the saying that... I am familiar okay. with the accusation. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't hurt my feelings because I know it's untrue. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, in, in bidding for the oil production of, uh, of Iraq, the U.S. companies didn't didn't bid for it. Mm -hmm. we, we, are, we, didn't do any, we didn't take any of the oil. Okay. Other countries took oil out of there, including some that we're not particularly friendly with. And yet, um, so th the point is, did we do that for the purpose of getting that resource? Absolutely not. If we wanted that resource, we could have just left it alone and things would have worked themselves out. Mm -hmm. Now, why did we go into Iraq? That's a very complicated question, and it's not one that necessarily has a clean answer, mm -hmm. you know, a clean and clear answer. A lot of times these things... Um, There are politics involved, and, uh, and of course there are economics involved. All war has uh, an economic element. I believe it was von Moltke who said, um, uh, von Moltke the Elder, who, who said that uh, all things being equal, the war will be won by the one with the longest purse. In other words, whoever okay. has yeah. the most money sure. in the end is going mm -hmm. to win. Sure. Um, and when you think about it, war is always fought over some resource, whether it's people, land, okay. uh, specific resources within the land or whatever. There's always some resource that people are battling over. Uh, so that's, that's, why the, that's why I say that all war, in order to understand war, you have to understand economics, which is... Why uh, you know we asked before the we actually talked. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a and that's why you teach it probably idea, because right? you because because yeah. uh, I have invested heavily in understanding economics in order to understand what we are doing. Yeah, for sure. So, where exactly have you been deployed to in the Middle East? In the Middle East, Afghanistan and Iraq. I've visited a few other places, but I've only been deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. Okay, so this might be a touchy subject again, but you have experience to comment. Yes. Okay, so... Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I would say, luckily, mo combat is something most people will never experience, especially anyone in a Western society. So 
my question is, is there anything significant, something, what, what was like the most extraordinary thing in combat that has stuck with you? What, what stood out the most in combat? What was something that maybe you did not expect that you faced in combat? I think the thing that surprised me the most was the sense of calm. You rely on your training and your equipment and your buddies, you know, the people around you, to gain control of what at first appears to be a chaotic or out-of-control situation. Yeah, because most people think war is really chaotic, especially when you're on the battleground. And there are times when when certainly there is an element of that chaos to it, but if you... um, if you're there and you're in the moment, your mind begins to process, I need to do this, I need to do this, check out this guy, is he okay? Check out this guy, is he okay? Meanwhile, he's doing the same thing for me. Mm-hmm. We're, all, we're all being aware of each other and uh, you know, if I'm in a place where I need to pull back and I don't realize it, if I'm exposed, somebody's gonna either yell to me or possibly and if I can't hear because of what's going on, is gonna grab me and pull me back or I would mm-hmm. do the same for him because that's, so you rely on each other. So you have, but there is this uh, like tremendous drill. Uh, I believe you're both football players, right? Football, no, you're tennis, football? He's oh, tennis. Tennis, he's tennis basketball. basketball. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> see, now I made an assumption that being Germans, you're going to be football players. You mean soccer? Football, I mean right? soccer. I mean, right, I, mean I mean true, true uh, football. Yeah, you know, American true football, football is, right. is gridiron, <laughs> which is a whole other game. Which I, you know, I'm fine with it, but you know, it's a different game. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, okay. But in uh, in basketball. Okay, tennis is a little bit different. It's mostly mano a mano, yeah. you know, a different thing. But in, in basketball, you're constantly aware of the people around you. Yes. You're constantly aware of what the other team is doing. Uh-huh. And you go through drills. That's what you practice and practice. For how many hours do you think you spend in practice for every hour on the court in a game? Too many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dozens, hundreds? Yeah, probably. In, in your lifetime, hundreds of hours preparing mm-hmm. for yeah. that little bit of time you actually spend on the court. It's the same That's thing true. in the in in the Army. We uh, we spent hundreds of hours preparing and drilling, and you know, there are certain, certain movements that you do. When I get the ball and I know that this guy's just gone behind me, I'm going to fake this way yeah. and pass this way, because you plan those plays yeah. and, you, and you develop that. We do the same thing. We develop plays, essentially, for how we're going to adapt to a million unforeseeable situations. So when you're actually in it, what happens to most, I think to most people, most people in the Army, in the U.S. Army, because we're very, very highly trained, is you just sort of get this kind of crystalline sense of clarity. And it's like, I have to do this, I have to go here, I have to get him, I have to make this call, I have to, whatever it is. You go through your, your little checklist in your brain of all the things you have to do, and then you adapt, and you're moving in the situation. But, uh, yeah, that's what, that's, to get back to your original question, that's what surprised me most was the simple clarity in those situations. How different is the actual time in combat, combat to the training? Because that's kind of like basketball. You train hours and hours to play the actual game, but once you're on the field playing the game, it's completely different, right? Like it's, you go over movements, but still the actual game is just different. So I can imagine you're highly trained, but you can't really train the actual situation that you're gonna face yeah. in combat, right? Like, where's no, the difference are, between training and then the actual time, the actual intervention? There are huge differences. Obviously, one is in training, you don't expect the potential of being killed, right. you mm-hmm. know, or, mm-hmm. you know, burned or maimed or whatever yeah. the things that can happen to you. Yeah. So, so that adds 
certainly adds a surge of adrenaline that you can't experience in training. Um, just the just the reality of the potential of your injury. Although it's interesting, most of the time you don't think about. I never thought about that. I never thought about the potential for my own injury. Um, you just, I guess, you're too busy with other thoughts. But how you feel, it's much like you described the difference between practice and a game. You go through practice, you're going through drills, but when you're on the game, there is a, a heightened awareness that you have. You know, great athletes. Concentration is higher. Yeah, yeah, your concentration is higher. And, and great athletes always talk about this heightened awareness when they're in an actual game, especially if it's a big game. Mm-hmm, of course. Um, your, your brain just, it's, it's like that. It's very much like that. It's the same kind of thing. So all of the training you do prepares you for those moments. But the moments themselves um, are just really a very different thing. It's interesting because that Navy SEAL quote that you mentioned before, that under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back to the level of your training. That's actually in our weight room here at ACU. We mm-hmm. see that every day when we work out. <laughs> and I think that's a very true quote. Um, so I think what, what really interests me is how... What is that feeling like and how do you deal with that feeling that, that your life is really on the line? Because that, that's a really, I don't even know how to describe it because it's yeah. definitely not an everyday situation, most definitely not. It's really something only very selected few people will ever experience. How does that feel like? How would you try to explain that to someone who's never experienced it? I would say that you don't feel it until afterwards when you've lost someone. When you go through something and everybody's okay, afterwards you laugh. It's kind of like after a game, like you win a ball game and you go into the locker room and everybody's laughing and clapping each other on the back and, and it feels good. And you go through a mission and everything's good and nobody's hurt, that's how you feel. Even if crazy stuff happened around you. Mm-hmm. But when all of a sudden at the end of an action, whether you were part of that action or not, whether it was something that you know, involve different people. And at the end of the action, one of your friends uh, is badly injured or mm. dead. Um, Then when it starts to feel real? It's completely different. Okay. Did, That's, ever, did that ever happen to one of you guys? Did yeah. You? Several times, yeah. Okay. Because I, I feel like, I mean, I, I, I obviously cannot relate, but I, I feel like when everything goes well or the way you planned it, then it doesn't really feel real that it's actually happening. But once something like this is going to happen, then all of a sudden you realize, whoa, we're actually in war. Like stuff, can ha- stuff like that yeah. can happen. What, and when I was in Iraq, uh, I was a Brigade S2, Brigade Intelligence Officer. And mm-hmm. my, um, my job, I, you know, that really brings out the sheepdog in me. It really made me realize the weight of the safety of all the soldiers, 5,000 soldiers deployed in this brigade. Um, And one of them died within the first week. And he was not a friend of mine personally, but uh, one of our soldiers Mm -hmm. died inside that first week. And it was just crushing because I felt like I had failed him somehow, you know, because it was my, my job to keep him safe. That'd be a really interesting thing is obviously you get to know the other guys so well you form so strong relationships how is it possible to because you have to sort of i can imagine how is it possible to kick off all the emotions out of that 
because obviously he's like maybe one of your best friends or something happens to him like how can you still focus on war how can you be all right i have to get rid of my emotions and i have to continue what i'm doing how is there a certain training for that how does that work no a uh, good question no there's no, there's no training for that mm -hmm. um when when you lose someone that's close when you lose someone who is just a, a sort of faceless part of your unit or even someone that you knew but just briefly mm -hmm. um i mean you feel bad but you move on because you, okay. i've got a million things to do and because i've got you have to i still have five thousand yeah. soldiers to protect yeah. you know i still have to do my job and so you just you you keep that focus but um when it's someone who is very close to you uh it really takes your breath away for a moment it really takes you out of uh your professionalism for at least a few seconds and mm -hmm. you know when i say a few seconds i'm really talking more like yeah. a few days yeah. you know uh but during that few days you still have to work you still have to get your job done there's still a general officer that needs to get briefed uh, on, mm -hmm. you know, some situation or whatever. Because it's not over. It's not over. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, that's one of the things about war. That's a you're going to take casualties. And, uh, one thing. On. One thing that that we've both read about in the past, and that I guess we've experienced to a minimal degree being in team, being on teams and sports teams, is the heightened sense of of community and camaraderie in war. Have you experienced that in that way? Were you like much closer to all of your soldiers than, than any other social bond you've experienced before or even afterwards? Yes. I have friends that... Uh, it's, I like to refer to, um, to the St. Crispin's Day speech, Henry V, and he talks... The, 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 the English are outnumbered, I believe, seven to one and by these French knights who are better armed and prepared and, and there's this, it, it, it just looks ridiculous and then he gives this wonderful speech and of course this is a speech written by by Shakespeare not probably given by Henry himself but uh, he puts these words in Henry's mouth and he says um, he's, he's saying in the, now I'll give you the context, he's saying that everybody here today becomes my brother this is the king speaking Everyone here today becomes my brother because we do this and we, we all share this risk of shedding our blood together. And he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And that's really what it is. It's a, it is a band of brothers. And mm -hmm. there's a popular, uh, I think it was HBO. And there's a positive it. touch to it, right? So oh, we yeah. happy few basically means that yeah. you can be happy to have that strong com yeah. community. Is that maybe something, and we were talking about that as well, um, before the podcast, is that something that you miss? Is there anything you miss out of war? Because, yeah. That's it. That's the only thing. The only thing mm -hmm. you miss about war is the closeness that you have with your brothers. And by brothers, of course, in today's army, I'm talking brothers and sisters. I served with yeah, many sure, fine sure, women sure. officers as well. Um, I served with people from, uh, let's see, Germany, England, Scotland, Ireland, so I'm going through the UK, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, Turkish officers, Polish officers, um, and I know I'm missing many mm -hmm. nationalities. Yeah. And it didn't matter. When we were part of one, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, we were a 
uh, a planning cell, and uh, it's called the G5. Uh, it's the what the term that they use for a plans cell, and um, we were one family. We were one band of brothers and sisters, even though we were from many different countries, because we were there united in one purpose. And any one of us, I felt, any one of us would have died for the other, mm -hmm. just as if it had been a, a, a band of uh, brothers of an infantry unit, as I'd grown up in when I was a young enlisted guy. Right. I think an interesting topic that is really prevalent today, too, is when soldiers get back, when they get back from their deployment, so all the PTSD discussion and what causes it, how to treat it, if the soldiers are being left by themselves and if they get enough help from the government or from the military and whoever should be responsible for that. How was your transition when you got back from combat? Was it, was it an easy transition? Was it smooth? Who, who could you rely on? Who were your resources? Like, how did you deal with all that? Um, when I got back, very shortly after I returned and I had lost... Um, four very close friends on my last deployment and it was pretty devastating where did that happen where was your last employment uh, afghanistan okay okay so i returned home from afghanistan to retire uh, and shortly after i got home my adult daughter passed away uh, tragically so at that moment i was completely overwhelmed The army tries to reach out and provide you some counseling, counseling and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly couldn't. Nothing they had to offer really was helping me at that moment because because my grief was just too big for that. What helped me was uh, my friends from church, and not just from the church that I was in there, but a church here in Arizona. I was I was in. Uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, when I retired, when I came back from okay. uh, from Afghanistan. I had, because I had lived here previously, I had friends here uh, in, a, in a church, and those friends just reached out to us and uh, blessed us. And this is where my daughter had been living just before she mm -hmm. passed away. So um, we were being ministered to by our, by our church friends from both directions. And that was the, that was the thing that helped. As far as government programs, and yes, there are things out there, um, and I, I'm sure they're very helpful for people that ha that don't have what I had. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, the the fellowship of believers was my was my strength. So you would say you can get rid of tough situations or maybe a a very hard time by diving into a community you would say because we were talking about communities and especially and I personally feel that having a good community um, whether it is a church or close friends and all that stuff can be really helpful um, would you would you agree with that would you say all right the church just that community feeling helped me a lot to get Absolutely. better so yes it is a, it is about a community and it's a, in your community of friends and of course our church friends were our friends mm -hmm. but I also had military friends and and my military friends had lost with the exception of my daughter the same people that okay. they were we were all a, a, a very tight knit little family mm -hmm. and uh, we'd lost I mean of the uh, about 10 people that were on the US side I'm speaking now um, that were part of that planning operation Three of them died, okay. um, so that's a that's a lot of, and we all shared that same loss. 
So that's, a, that's something that really brings you together as a community. If you, if you could have gone back to the day when you, I know that might be a really difficult question to answer, would you say, all right, I would do it again, join the military? Yes. Do you think it was worth it? Yes. Mm -hmm. I would, because again, I'm still a sheepdog at heart. Mm -hmm. uh, I still believe in the mission of defending the defenseless. Mm -hmm. um, I still believe that the world would be a far better place if we didn't have to have this, mm -hmm. if we could get rid of the aggression and the, and the dangerous international things that force us to have a military. But because that isn't, we're not there yet, we're not in utopia, yeah. we have a real world to deal with, and because of that, someone must serve, and if not me, then who? Mm -hmm. So, I would do it. Do you think that's one of the most important aspects of, of the motivational side of joining the military? You, you mentioned it a couple of times now that you feel like a sheepdog at heart, and I think that's a very honorable motivation behind joining the military. Sure. But I can also see that nowadays, most definitely a lot of young people join the military sort of as a challenge, as a challenge to themselves, as a challenge physically, mentally, and then also for prestige because they like having the title or they like wearing the uniform, whatever. It's like sort of a status symbol. I'll take it a step further. There are people that join for the wrong reasons. There are people that Is there a wrong are broken people. Join the, join sure, the there are people that are broken people and they like the idea of going in and killing somebody else from mm -hmm. another place. Timothy McVeigh is somebody in our history. He's probably not a person. Do you familiar with his name? Mm -hmm. But he, uh, you ever heard about the Oklahoma City bombings? Yeah. Yes. Big, okay, sure. he was the guy behind that. He joined the army and he talked about joining the army because he wanted to kill. He got to go to um, the Gulf War and he was excited about the killing. And he came back and he killed again. Uh, there are broken people in the world. Mm -hmm. And some of them, you, you, we try to screen them out before. They, we don't want people in the army who love to kill, who want to kill. Yeah. Okay, that's not who we want in. But some are going to get through. Okay, so yes, there are, there are some people that do have a wrong reason for going in. Um, but there are people that, like you said, for all those other reasons. And sometimes, and frankly, one of the big ones is economics. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they just, they're broke. And it's like, well, this is the job that I can get that I know I can make a living. Right. I don't know what else to do with my life. And somewhat just want an adventure. They just want to do something yeah. different, get out of their hometown. Uh, you know, maybe it opens up our opportunities for them for work later. And some people, now again, the vast majority of people who enter in and they come in as privates or on the officer side as lieutenants, um, they're gone as soon as their enlistment is up, that first enlistment. So the vast majority go away after one enlistment. Hmm. Um, Like But of those who stay, they're the ones that, they're there. And, and I would say of those, it's almost, maybe of this big group that are initially in lists, maybe 10% are true sheepdogs. Yeah. And of that little group that stays, now all of a sudden about 90% are true sheepdogs. So would you say that, um, I mean, obviously we talked about that sheepdog mentality, but what are other mindset skills or other perceptions that people need to have to join the military so um, you said you served with officers from all over the world is there like maybe one similarity kind of mentality that you see throughout all these people that they have what kind of mindset do you need to have for war I think all of the officers I served with no matter where they were from officers and enlisted soldiers 
um, the soldiers they served with, were all um, have a little bit of, I don't know how to say this, not have it sound terrible, but a little bit of recklessness. Okay. They're, they're, they're a little bit the kind of people who are going to jump out of airplanes. They're going to do, go mm-hmm. and do mountain adventures. They're the kind of rock to, stars. Yeah, well, not so much rock stars. They're not yeah. so looking for fame, but they are yeah, looking okay. for... They're just people that need to get out of the safe zone. Right. Mm-hmm. right? They seek the risk. Yeah, and, and yeah, so maybe I guess there's a certain risk taker that's inherent in everyone yeah. who does that. Also, I would say almost every single person... There is a sense, a, a deep sense of honor, no matter what country mm-hmm. you're from, and it's defined differently and displays differently from different cultures. But everyone comes in with this sense of this is an honorable profession and this is an honorable thing I'm doing, and I'm going to behave in such a way as to bring honor to my uniform and to my family. Have you gained anything to your mindset after joining the military? Has there been any changes that you would say, I didn't have that before the military, and now I have that, now I have, and you would say that it's a skill, it's something you got better at? Certainly, I'm far more disciplined than I was. I am far more organized than I was. Uh, it's, it's now very second nature for me to look at a complex problem and start breaking it down and organizing it and, and figuring out an approach that will be a step-by-step approach. And that's something that all people learn to do to some extent yeah. but the Army really, or the military in general, but certainly in the Army in my experience, um, really forces you to develop that skill. So my perception of a soldier, talking a little bit about discipline, routines, um, being able to organize yourself, my perception of a soldier um, is kind of that guy wakes up at 5 a.m., does his bed, um, like gets some sort of physical activity and I don't know, but a, just a guy whose day is just planned out. How, how does that actually um, look like? How does a day um, of a soldier look like? Okay, so yes, um, for, again, that big group that's all mm-hmm. the initial guys, when you're first just part of the big pool, everything's planned for you. Right. So you go in and you do. You have that 5 a.m. wake up and you're on the physical training field at, mm-hmm. at 5.30. Between then and then, you've made your bed, gotten yourself dressed and done all the things you need to do. And you're out there and you do physical training and then you go back to the barracks and you take a shower and you put on your uniform and you check your uniform and you look for loose strings and you do, you know, do all of this <laughs> detail because you're trained from the moment you're in basic training, you are trained to look for details. And so you're, it's all about attention to detail. And, and so it's all about getting everything right. It's not, it's not enough to get most of it right. You have to get everything right. And then you move to your job and you do that job all for whatever period of time you're doing it during that day. And if you're like I started out in the infantry, that means you probably start out in some sort of formation. And from there, you're going to do a movement to an area. And then you're going to do some sort of training. And the training can, can at times feel very natural and spontaneous but it's actually all very carefully planned so what happens is you're at that level everything is planned for you but then at the next level up you are the ones who are actually starting to do some of that planning and once you move up yeah yeah and okay. then you move up to the next level and you're not only doing the planning of the actual exercise on the or for what what that soldier's day is going to look like but you're starting to plan what 
the unit's month is going to look like or the unit's year is going to look like in terms of their planning. And you're building these long calendars with lots of detail. <laughs> and you're having to just sort through all of these different things and create this complex thing. And through all of it, you have to build in flexibility because at any moment, sure, boom, the balloon happen. goes up. Now we have to, everything we yeah. planned is out the window. Now we're refocusing. We're going in this direction. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, 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 there's a tremendous amount of discipline involved from the early part of it, but that discipline comes with you the further up you go in the chain until, I mean, my, by the end, I was in the, um, the plans shop for the uh, operational headquarters of Afghanistan. We were uh, JTC, mm-hmm. the Joint uh, um, um, sorry, not, not JTC, the um, I gotta get the right name now. <laughs> we were the, uh, uh, but we were the joint operational headquarters for ISAF, which was okay. which was the headquarters of Afghanistan, right? Okay. So we were the ones planning all of the actual operations for the entire country. Oh. So now you've gone from your planning for a platoon to your planning to a company to a, now planning to a country, right? Oh, yeah. So the planning at that level is you know, an inch deep and a mile wide, right? Because you're looking at very big movements. Yeah. And between you and all the soldiers who are actually executing, there's another dozen layers of planners who have to make all of that stuff happen. So everything just fits together. It's like a fabulous big jigsaw puzzle. What would you say is one misconception people have about war? About war? Um... I think people's biggest misconception about war is that the the infantryman on the ground who's always the subject of all the movies and TV shows is all there is. And in reality, mm-hmm. war for every one man on the ground, for every what we call a trigger puller, you have dozens or even hundreds of people that are making everything work for that guy to get his job done. So we call that tooth to tail, the tooth being the guy in the ground. Uh, pulling the trigger, making things happen, and the tail being all of the people back here um, handling the logistics and the planning and the intelligence um, efforts to to understand what the enemy is doing and all of these different things that come into making it so that this guy has absolutely everything he needs to get his job done. That's what people don't understand about war is that the few guys you see out here running in the dirt... They're this much of the effort. Yeah. No, they so are. They are like the that. effort when you come right down to it. Okay. Nothing happens without those guys. That's what it's all comes yeah. down to. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not there without the people that outfit them with with equipment and the people that transport them to get there mm-hmm. and the people that plan the whole thing, that put the units together. Sure. The, right. So a little more than what Hollywood shows us. Yeah, just okay. a little more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, right. So because logistics doesn't make for sexy movies. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. that. Very <laughs> totally. There's never gonna be. I think there's never gonna be a movie about a guy sitting at a computer. I don't know. Like, it's, uh, it's hard or to producing imagine. the equipment that it's gonna be an epic honestly, movie you about a guy. That you could have made it about my life, and I still wouldn't watch it. It's just yeah. too boring to watch that level of. <laughs> <laughs> The guy who designs the uniforms. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you find Ryan Gosling as, yeah. as an actor. 
All right, that that is actually very interesting. I feel um, so. This podcast is also about we are trying to implement a culture where we see failure or hardships as an opportunity to learn something and get maybe better out of it. And that's why we are trying to ask our guests to maybe talk about one. And Oli, if you feel comfortable sharing with it, uh, it, obviously, we're trying to ask our guests about one big mistake or one big challenge he or she faced during his life or her life and maybe what experience you gained from it after it. Or maybe, um, again, like Michael already said, all right, I made a mistake, but I handle it that way that I actually gained something out of it or I learned something out of it and now I maybe can help others or I can live in peace and stuff like that. Is there anything that you can think of? Yeah. Um, again, the uh, the most, I'm not going to call it a failure of my part, but the, the most challenge, challenging thing that I faced was the loss of so many close people in such a short period of time and adapting from that and basically... Because then at the same time, I was also transitioning out of the army and I mm. had to sort of reinvent myself. Yeah. I had to decide who I was going to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the hardest thing is to be faced with tremendous pain and difficulty and at the same time reinvent yourself. And I think a lot of times that's true for everybody when they when they lose a career yeah. or you lose a family member or yeah. a whole family or you lose something that's just deeply important to you and if that's and as a result of that change then you end up having to change your own life in some way um, I think that is the hardest thing for all of us is to reinvent ourselves as a result of catastrophic loss do you have advice for people that are in a similar situation yes uh, step back and breathe. Don't get caught up in right. the uh, in the activity. When I first got out of the army and I came here, um, I took a job teaching full time, and I was a student full time, and I was trying to run um, a couple of smaller projects on the side, mm -hmm. and I was putting myself into what we call op tempo, which is um, the operational tempo or the operational pace of actions as if I was deployed mm -hmm. because if I kept myself that busy then I didn't have time to think about all the tragedy mm -hmm. um, and that was a terrible mistake and it's taken me a long time to recover from that to kind of get myself where I am now mm -hmm. where I am very thoughtfully turning down some opportunities in order to um, not overburden my life with too much stuff going on, and I think that I think that anyone going undergoing a lot of uh, a significant tragedy, and of course everyone reacts differently, but a lot of people I think will do the same thing I did, and they'll try to um, make themselves so busy that they don't mm -hmm. have to think, and that's the wrong answer. I think the best thing to do is to intentionally withdraw for a minute. Think about it. And think and let those friends, those people close to you, let them in. Let them. That was the other thing I did. Is I, didn't want, I didn't want help. I didn't yeah. want anybody inside my protective shell. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, 
hey, I'm a soldier. I'm tough. Right. I got this. Yeah. You, know, you take care of you. I'm, I'll take care of me. And that was kind of that attitude. And, uh, and the biggest thing that you have to do is to just let it down. Mm-hmm. Let the guard down and let people in so that people can uh, start ministering to you. And you'd be, sur- be surprised how much you'll be able to minister to other people at the same time because other people are suffering. And their little thing may seem like nothing compared with what you're going through, but to them right there in that moment, it's everything. And you have to be able to minister to people where they are. Right. That's very interesting, really wise words, I think. So I think my last question for today would be, what is the worst advice you hear from people in your field? And what advice would you give a young high school or college student, ambitious young person who's trying to join the military? What would be your advice and what would be some bad advice people from your field give? Okay, well, for a young person who wants to join the military, I would say, um, don't go into this thinking, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And also don't go into it thinking, I'm going to do this just for four years and then I'm going to be done. Hmm. Keep your options open. You may get into it and discover oh, I really am one of the people that belongs here. Or you may get into it and discover, I am not one of the people who belong here. And you have to keep yourself open to either possibility. So don't try to crowd yourself in. Uh, Make yourself open to as many experiences as possible within that situation. Like I, I, I took every time, they always, there's a... An old saying in the at least in the American Army, never volunteer for anything. But I did the opposite. I volunteered for everything because I wanted as many experiences as I could get. Yeah. So I went to air assault school, and I you know went to uh, PLDC early, and I did everything that I could do to uh, to enhance my experience. And I, that's a, that is an advice that I would give to somebody: is just seriously try to taste it all. Mm-hmm. Really try to taste it all. As far as bad advice, um, an NCO who worked for me was, I sometimes referred to him as a professional malingerer. You probably don't know that word. A malingerer is a person who goofs off um, all the time. Mm-hmm. Person who, who okay. tries, who who works harder at not working, than it would just take him to just go ahead and work and get the job done. Got okay, it. so he was, and he had somebody who had managed to always slip through the cracks, and he got himself promoted up to uh, E six, which is getting up there in the enlisted mm-hmm. ranks. Um, but that was terminal for his career because he was absolutely unaccountable. He refused to be accountable for anything important. Um, and uh, he was giving advice to the soldiers that were under him, but of course okay. they were all under me because I was above him. Yeah. Um, so these are my soldiers that he's talking to, and this infuriated me because he was giving them very bad advice, basically trying to talk to them about how to cheat the system. And so mm-hmm. I would say as far as bad advice... Anybody who tries to talk to you about it as a cheatable system, that is horrible advice because A, eventually you're going to get caught and it's going to be ugly for you. And B, you're missing out on all of the joy of it. If you look at it as something that to get over, 
you know, something to uh, you probably don't know, even know that term. To, to get over is to you know to cheat to okay yeah. to, to cheat your way through. If you're looking at something to kind of cheat your way through to to earn money and maybe get even a medical pension without ever mm. ever having to mm. earn any of that. Um, you are going to have a horrible experience and when it's all over with, people are going to ask you what you did and you're going to tell them a lies and you're going to be ashamed in your heart. You know, so, so be honorable as a person. Mm-hmm. I think that's perfect point to wrap that whole thing up. Yeah. Um, pushing, pushing an hour probably right now. So It's awesome. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thanks for, for coming on. For being yeah. here. It was, it. it was really great. Yeah. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you.